What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome in to episode 119 of the House of L podcast. This is a special episode that we have this week. Because the guest is my mom. I get to talk to my mom about all sorts of stuff. Stuff that I've always wanted to know. I get to ask her questions about it. So that's our episode for this week. And I'm going to get into it in just a second. But I wanted to tell you. That this episode and this podcast is brought to you by Team Hockberg. My man, David Hockberg. Go visit his website, 56david.com. If you're buying a home or you're refinancing a home, this is the person that you want on your side. You can call him at 855-56-DAVID. Do me this favor. When you call David Hockberg, you mention that you heard about him on the house of l podcast be like hey i was listening to lawrence talk with his mom on the podcast and he said that you're a good person to help out with a refinance or buying a home yes if you need to get the funds if you're trying to figure out how to make some of this money work this is the person that you want all right team hockberg 855-56-DAVID homeside financial is an equal housing lender NMLS number 1124061. So a few weeks ago, this was actually before Mother's Day. Tony Gill had said to me, because Tony and I still bounce ideas off of each other, even though Tony, well, Tony's actually kind of my boss now. He didn't used to be. He used to be my producer. So we worked in tandem. But now he's kind of my boss over at NBC Sports Chicago. But he said, hey, are you going to do something with your mom on the podcast for Mother's Day? And I said, I hadn't really thought about doing that, but she'd make for a really interesting interview. Obviously, I missed the Mother's Day deadline, but it got me to thinking because at the same time, while I was thinking about doing this, I was having my students at DePaul interview people. And inside of this pandemic, the interviews were usually people in their family. I'm a big proponent of you should interview your parents and you should have that. You should have that document. You should have that file because there's so much stuff about them that you don't know. Even growing up in the same household, like you, it's, it's hard to see the mosaic of them as a person. And I really enjoyed listening back to my students share their stories about how their 
their parents became police officers and textile workers and construction workers and all this other stuff, like hearing those stories and hearing how much pride my students had in their parents. I was like, well, I actually have a platform where I can interview my parents and let people hear it. So I recommend, I highly recommend that you interview your parents, put it down digitally, save it. You can go back and listen to it whenever. It's great. And if you've got grandparents, man, you need to talk to them too and pick up some of that wisdom. I enjoy talking to my mom pretty much no matter what. She's pretty funny. She's also very serious. I I always explain my parents this way. My father gave me Baldwin and Shakespeare. My mother gave me Sun Tzu and Patton. And I'm not kidding. Like the art of war was a gift from her. And she gave me General Patton's book on leadership. So that's the person that you're going to be hearing from inside of here. All my friends who have met or interacted with my mom love her because of the way that she acts. Like she is, she is fierce. She's very sweet, but she's fierce. We talk about a lot of stuff in here, including a little bit about my childhood. Not a lot, but a little bit about my childhood. Why she thought I would leave town once I started working in broadcasting. And we have a very shared appreciation for teaching, which obviously comes from her because her and my my father are both teachers. But it was great to talk about that. My mom's in the book of who's who in American teaching. She's an award-winning teacher. So being able to pick her brain about education is a lot of fun. And there's a portion in here where she talked about working with her students And I think it's such a great idea. She had a kind mailbox for students to pass notes to each other. She'll explain it inside of the episode. But I think if if you're someone who works with children, this is an excellent way to allow them to learn how to communicate in in a kind fashion. So you will find out also why I am the way I am. I'm a good amalgam of my parents and and you found with my father, like you found like the very pragmatic. If you go back and listen a few episodes ago, very pragmatic, the, the way that he goes about breaking stuff down, the amount of research that he's willing to put into a subject matter, like all those things live inside me. The other things that live inside me, you're going to hear from my mom and, and you'll be able to figure out, you know, which way I lean from day to day. But you'll be able to hear it. The The part in here that I think I didn't know the most is when we start talking about Vietnam. There was a lot of stuff that I didn't know about my mom's connection to the Vietnam War that she talked about. So I'm not going to give you a whole synopsis. I want you to listen to the thing because it's really, really good. So I want you to hear my mom in her own words and us talk about a lot of stuff. Oh, one more thing. You ever seen the movie Black Panther? Another way for me to sum up my mom. I view her like the queen in Black Panther. T'Challa's mom. Like I see her as that. She sees herself as the general. 
that'll give you an idea of, of what you're going to encounter. So episode 119 with my mother, Rosemary. So here's a question I've always wanted to ask you. Do you consider yourself a South Sider or a West Sider? I don't know. I think it all depends on the day and uh, what's going on. I'm very proud of my West Side upbringing. And so I always go back to that. And I'm, I'm very proud of the people that I've met and the things that I've done while we lived on the South Side. So I, I can't say either one. I'm proud of both both of those phases of my life. What do you think is, is significant and unique to an experience of growing up on the West Side? I think when I was younger, I was thinking about that this morning, uh, there were so many different people. And my parents were the type that if someone spoke to you, you spoke to them. You looked them in the eye and you spoke and you said hello. And uh, I learned how to you know, be comfortable about doing that when I was younger. But the West Side, when I was growing up, it was different than it is now. I mean, we could play outside and we could do a lot of different things and uh, meet a lot of different people. So I think that was what the people in general were more, they were more generous in their speaking to young children and uh, watching out for us as we played on the streets and different things. So you said that with your parents, because they were saying, speaking to people, looking people in the eye, that was something that you picked up on. I feel like that's something that I've picked up on from you. I think that's very important. Why? I think people know who you are when you look them in the eye and you speak to them. And and it's genuine. It's not just something that you casually throw off a a hello. Uh, I think it takes time and... And it lets people know that you're sincere and you appreciate meeting them. So my parents were very, very good about that, um, forcing us to speak until we got to it was just a part of who we were. I feel like with you in particular, there's also an element of confidence that that comes with it. Like you're when you walk, you walk very upright. When you talk to people is is there's never a point where I don't feel like you are in command of a situation. How, so do you think that learning how to speak to people and look them in the eye played a role in that? I think so. I think so. And, uh, I've always tried to, to be that person where I was confident in, in what I was doing. My great-grandmother told me when I was younger that uh, to always stand up straight. And she was maybe five, five, two. But she always, and she was in her 80s by the time I knew her, and she always walked so quickly and so straight. And you would see her coming down the road. And I mean, and this is her bearing was just so wonderful. I always wanted to make sure that as I grew older, that I would do that, make a conscious effort of standing up straight. And so I do. What else do you think you learned from your great grandmother and your grandmother? To listen. They were very good storytellers. 
And my grandmother had this wonderful voice and you would be listening to the story. You couldn't leave the story because of her voice. It was so soothing. It was, you know, it was a comforting voice. I think I just learned how to listen and I could just sit on that porch when we would go in the summer and just listen to stories. What was the South like for you? I was fun. It was fun. I mean, we picked berries. We went, we went to the pond. My grandparents had a working farm. So we were able to, to get things, vegetables uh, and fruit. They had pecan trees. They had apple trees and it was just a lot of fun and freedom. It wasn't living in the city. So we would go every summer, I think, until I got to be about 12 or 13. And then we stopped going. So when you're down there, how did you feel out of place or did you feel connected to it? I felt very connected to it. My, my grandparents had, all of my relatives, it was sort of like a compound where, you know, all of the houses were very close and connected and you could go from one house to the next house. And it just seemed like the family enjoyed my cousins and my aunts and uncles. They enjoyed us coming down and uh, they greeted us warmly and all the time we were there. So. You know, we were sheltered as far as that went because they were on a farm. We were far away from the, the city part of the South. So I enjoyed being going South. Was there any part of you that thought that that could be a life for you living in the South? No, no part of me. Why not? Thought that. Because I knew my parents weren't going to move to the South. And I wasn't going to be down there by myself, not, you know, without my parents. No, it wasn't the life that I wanted. It was, it was nice down there for the summer, but that, that's, that's all I could deal with. Just the summer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all I could deal with. So you talked about what was unique to the West side. Mm -hmm. What's unique to the South side from your experience? I enjoy going to the high school that I went to. I went to Harlem. I made many good friends. I saw a different way, just something unique. I, I really can't think of anything unique. I just got accustomed to it. But like I said, I, I made lifelong friends on the South Side. And uh, I enjoyed my adventure. We learned different things. That was it. What was it like to grow up there during the time in which you grew up? I think that it was a, a good time in the 60s, but you know, it was things were changing in the 60s. The music was changing, the way people dressed, the war was on. So that was, that was not a good time. But the, the revolution started, you know, there were a lot of protests when I was growing up. So those were things that were that were going on during that time. Did any of these revolutions or mini revolutions speak to you? Like what what caught your eye or your ear back then? I think Vietnam caught my ear, caught my eye. 
think that was my first experience with someone I know dying. And we had a friend named Joe. And he was just so anxious to get into the Army because he wanted to be in the Army and he wanted to go to Vietnam. And and um, I think he was there, maybe, I remember him leaving, and I think he was there maybe two weeks, and he died in friendly fire. Well, I didn't know what friendly fire meant during that time. It was just devastating that he died. I think that's what, that made a great impact on us because he really was the first friend that I had who died. And so I was, I think that was my, it was my senior year in high school. And I was just devastated by that. And I remember, I remember today, I was sitting on the steps of my parents' house and I was talking to another friend and somebody just walked past and said, did you, did you hear that Joe died? And I was like, what? You know, so it was my, my experience with the war. And then it was just like, I don't like this war. I imagine that that's a, a hard thing to see someone that you grow up around, you see in the neighborhood. Yes, they- it was. It was. And uh, like I said, it was just an experience I had never had, but it's an experience we all have to go through. The very first friend or relative or someone who dies. And so that was my, my remembrance of that. So you felt a kinship to the people that were in the streets protesting against the war at that point? Yes. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And I and uh, I was at what was called Chicago Teachers College then. I was over there. They were doing a lot of protesting over there. So, yes, that was my first uh, protest in my, my experience where I personally participated in that. How did you feel when you were with other people who were protesting the war? I thought they had a right to do it. And I was fine with that. I'm, you know, I'm not a violent person, so I don't like the violence that the protesters were were dealing with. But I, I thought they had a, a right to protest, especially the people who were in that in that group who would be drafted. What did your parents think of this? Yeah, I think they didn't like it either, but they weren't protesters they were not protesters but they spoke about it in the house they didn't like it well let me ask you about your parents i like to i like (laughs) to hear stories about my grandparents because i know them but i don't know them you know what i mean i understand yeah so Uh so why don't we talk about your dad because he died when i was pretty young so I have yes. I have memories of him same with Papa where I have some like flashbacks but I don't feel like I knew the man because I was a child when he passed away. So okay. what was he like? He was he was he was a product of his upbringing of the time. He he was a strong man. He believed that a man was in charge of his house. 
and making decisions, but he was a kind man too, because our house was open to anybody who needed some place to stay. And uh, you could always come to our house and get a meal. So he had this exterior, but then you saw this other side, this soft side of him. He loved my mother a lot and he loved us. And when the grandchildren came along, I think he kind of went a little crazy. He just <laughs> loved his grandsons. He loved the idea of these grandsons. It was it was just a different person I saw when when the grandchildren came along. So, you know, you think you know your parents until you see them with your children. And then it's 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 sort of like a different thing. How did you see that manifest itself? So you have two boys, <laughs> they're five yeah. years apart. How did yeah. you see the way that he reacted to us? change your perspective of who he was well he was always coming over to pick you all up you know and and take you with him he, he was going to get ice cream he was going to do this he was just so patient he had time to listen and when i was growing up he was working so much but when you all came along he would spend time talking with you and and listening to your little conversations, he took time to play. And I think when when we were children, just like with most parents, you have to, you take time to work. And you do play a little bit, but you, you're more relaxed when the grandkids come along. Those are kind of the snapshots that I have. I have, yeah. I have snapshots shots of this very tall man. Very tall man. being very playful and chasing me around the house like that sort of thing like that's that's what I remember and I remember being I remember feeling loved by him yes 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 you were you were you and your brother he just loved you and all of his grandchildren all of those he got to see he just loved you know and I and uh, I think it was five boys before he passed. Yes, I can't remember, uh, but he he loved his grandsons, and uh, he made he was not embarrassed by this love. He loved his grandsons. So he drove a truck. He drove a truck, and he was a truck mechanic, and he would have to go out. Um, in the evening, he worked in the evening. And um, if a truck was broken down someplace, he had to go. He was the one who went and fixed it. What was that like knowing that he could get a call in the middle of the night and just be gone? Well, it wasn't more like a call because uh, his shift was like from three to midnight. And so this is what he was doing during that time. During the 60s and the and the 70s, it wasn't like it is now where somebody will call you up and do this, this, and this. <clears throat> he had a few calls like that, but it was, wasn't standard procedure. He just, that's what he did when he went to work at 3 o'clock. 
Sometimes he would come home later than his shift was supposed to be. And that's because he had to go on a call to pick up a truck someplace in Indiana, wherever it was. I want to go back for a second to your house yeah. being open and yeah. and people needing a meal or a place to stay. Yeah. That sense of community, where do you think that comes from with your parents? I think that was from being brought up in the South. I think that's what people in the South did. <clears throat> and I think they just carried it on with them. What do you think, Ron? Yeah. Uh-huh. I just think that's what it was. You know, a lot of it is just this is the way they were brought up. You know, you take care of your family. You take care of your friends. And that's what they did. What do you think is the best thing you learned from your father? Not to take a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's one of the <laughs> biggest things I could attribute to him just not to do that how did he teach you that just by the way he responded to things i just observed and i figured this is good this is the way to be you know and so that's what i did yeah you very much carried through with that throughout <laughs> your life <laughs> I think so, Lawrence. I think so. <laughs> to, to, to not, did you ever sense that it's one thing for it to come from a tall man, a tall, dark man, that mm -hmm. idea of don't mess with me. Did you ever get any resistance not being a tall, dark man when you, I think, yes, yes. I think uh, uh, being a female, it wasn't expected of me. And I think when people found out who I was, it was, it might have been startling at first because I really wasn't going to take whatever. You know, I, I, I've always wanted justice. And so whatever was right was right. So I think the resistance came because I was a female. I think men could do a lot of things that females you know, couldn't during that time. I think that's just who I was. And I made a point of being that's who I am. So that was the resistance. All right, let's talk about your mom. Okie dokie. Okay. I love my mother a lot. I love my father a lot. She seemed to have a hundred jobs. She did. And she did them all very well. So what were all the things that she did? Besides being a homemaker, a cook, a bottle washer, semi-doctor, knowing what how to take care of everybody. She was a beautician by trade. She worked in the restaurants when we were younger. Those were her jobs. And whatever you ask her to do, she would do it. I also have my snapshot of her mm -hmm. and... She didn't pass away until I was, what, 23? Somewhere around there. Um, yes. So I have a, a, a bigger sense of who she was. But what the thing that I've learned like as I've gotten older is a lot of these things you associate 
with your relationship with that person. So maybe yeah. you don't see them as an entire person. Like I see her as my grandmother, my sweet yeah. grandmother that would read the paper with me, that would watch sports with me, like all of that stuff. So and sneak and give you a cup of coffee when you were a baby. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That was happening. Yes, a, a grand protector, like all of those yeah. things. Like I yeah. see, but being her child was a different experience. So when you look back on your relationship with your mother and trying to see her as a, an entire human being, what are the things that you see? I don't know if I can actually see her as an entire human being. She was my mother. Some things that, that you know, you know about your mother and you might find out something different later on. And you said, no, I never knew she, she did that. Uh, did you know your grandmother used to play cards? No. Okay. See, they used to play cards. Like and people would come over to the house or? People would come over to the house. We'd go over to uh, our aunt's houses, my, where my grandmother lived and they would play cards. They would play Keno. But she was she was a, a homemaker and basically and she could cook and she could bake and she could do all of these things. Plus, she could do hair beautifully. So I don't think that. Uh, I don't think that I can think of anything that that would be different. I knew she had aspirations and I didn't find that that out until later on in her life. I think I just just happened to ask what would she have done if, uh, you know, if things had been different, if she had grown up in this time. And she told me she would have been a nurse. And, and I never knew that. Because that was in the back of my mind that I always wanted to be a nurse. And so it was surprising that she would say that. But that was one of the things that she wanted to be. How did they find their way to the South Side? They had an opportunity to buy a house. They had been saving and saving. We were getting bigger. They needed bigger space. And they, they a, a leap of faith, they found the house and they bought it. And they were so proud to have to have purchased a home. And we were proud of them. How big a deal was that back then for a black family? That, I think it was a very big deal in 1963. I think it was a very big deal. And uh, but things were opening up for black people. And my father was a person who saved. So things were opening up. He found an opportunity and he jumped on it. And they enjoyed their house until both of them passed. They enjoyed their home. And I think it was a very big deal for them. And it seemed as if the neighborhood, I'm, I'm finding this out like in my being a homeowner myself now, I'm okay. trying to do a better job of 
getting to know my neighbors and allowing them to get to know me. Yeah. And I was thinking back on this when I went to go drive <laughs> past our old house last week. Okay. And I, I was thinking like how many of the neighbors I could name and I, I could still name them. You know, right. like, this is where the Burnses lived and That's right. this is where the Lamberts lived and all this mm. stuff. It feels as if there was a deeper sense of community amongst those blocks from the time that you were growing up to the time when you ended up buying a home. And I don't know <laughs> if I feel that now. Like, we're trying. I'll say that. Our... Our, our block is trying. Like we have substantive conversations, but I don't feel particularly close to to any of the neighbors. And maybe it's me looking at it from the vantage point of a child. I felt like you guys knew. I felt like everyone knew you on the block and you knew everyone on the block. Yes, I felt the same way. But you know, in... Looking back on it, I, I was not a visitor. I never really did a lot of, I would talk to people on the street, but I don't think you can remember a time when I was in somebody else's house. I cannot. Well, because I, I didn't do that. I would talk to people on the street and uh, people would talk to me when I would be outside, but I didn't do a lot of visiting and uh, I didn't allow a lot of visiting in my home either. But I was very friendly. Everybody knew me. I was very friendly. And, and with, I still am. I know. I know. <laughs> and, and, and with your parents, it was, it was like that, too. It, it seemed like yes. you had connections with their friends on the block. Yes. Yes. That's just the way we were. And that's just the way I am. You know, I don't, I don't like a lot of people visiting but i know a lot of people i'm very similar in that I, I i i know i noticed that in you but that's all right you know some people have people in and out of their houses and some people don't it doesn't mean that you're unfriendly it's just just the way that you are hmm. but that's all right Lawrence. you're a good person <laughs> i try I know, I know. I try to be. <laughs> so, so when you went to college, was it specifically yes. to teach? Yes, because that's where, that's what Chicago Teachers College was all about. And it was, it was, you know, Chicago State now, but it was very good. Everyone there was very good at what they did. Don't you think so? Yes. I think the people, our instructors were teachers. They weren't just instructors. They were teachers. And I think that we got a very good education at Chicago Teachers College. But yes, I got a scholarship to go there. My parents didn't have money to send me, you know, away or to send me to another school. So I went about trying to get myself a scholarship. And I did. I got a, a scholarship to to uh, to teach, and and uh, it worked out very well because I didn't really have the money, and I was very grateful to Chicago Teachers College for that. 
that group of people, that era of people who went through Chicago's teachers college, I know some of them. I've talked to a few of them. Yes. There seems to be, that seems to be the backbone of the Chicago teachers union. Like as I, I know it like that, that group of people and some of the things that you, you all went through in the eighties and nineties, it seems to be a big contingent of people that came through the program of Chicago's teachers college. I would, I would think so, but I, I think over time, you know, they're, they're kind of fading out and we're retiring and, and, and everything, but I think they were the backbone of, uh, you know, the teachers in Chicago. I really think that they, they gave an excellent education to us. And like I said, I was very grateful for that because it, it gave me a career that lasted 35 years. And um, what can you say? You know, it was, it was just an opportunity, a good opportunity that I had. What was your favorite part about being in a classroom? I loved teaching first grade. I loved when I finally got a student to actually read and to realize, you know, you could see the eyes lighting up when you realize that they realized they actually read that, Hmm. you know, and that was the joy. That was the joy. I always would tell uh, my colleagues that I enjoy teaching first grade because I actually taught these children everything they're going to need to know for the rest of their lives. And of course, the other <laughs> and of course the other teachers say, "Oh, yeah, right, sure you did," but but that's the way I felt that I was teaching them for the rest of their lives. So. Yes. That's a great feeling though, that you're, you're teaching them very simple math. You're teaching them how to read. And those are things that you need to function in society. In life, in life. Yeah. And, and I enjoyed it and I, and that's the way I I took it. And I also wanted, I always wanted to teach the children. Like I would want somebody to teach you and your brother. I wanted to be thorough, you know, so that was what I enjoyed about teaching. And of course, the people that I met while I was teaching who have, just like with high school friends, I have longtime friends just from teaching Mm. and people who I talk to on a regular basis just from teaching. So it makes me happy. When you see the grown-up version of students that you taught. (laughs) What's that like for you? It would be strange, but you know, they all have that same face. It's very unusual for me to meet somebody that I taught in first or second grade that I can't recognize that face or that laugh or that smile because... It's just, you know, it's just, you never really changed that much. So 
it's always fun and it's always nice. And they always have a little story to tell me about something that they remember about me. And uh, some of the things I, I remember and some of the things, you know, I forget. But if they remember something good, then that, that's fine with me. How do you think that you developed as a teacher from the moment that you walked into a classroom to the moment that you retired? I think I wasn't, uh, I wasn't closed minded. I was willing to, to learn new, new skills and I was willing to learn new ways. I wasn't set in my way. There were some things I knew that worked and I used those things but I wasn't close-minded about new things that were coming. And I always had, uh, I promise I wasn't gonna mention any names, but I always, I had this one friend, Doris, who I met my first year of teaching. And I would see her walking through the hallway with her children and they would be just lined up like little soldiers and, and they would go through the hall. And I said, that's who I want to be like. And I would pick her brain and I would ask her different things. And she was kind enough to show me different things. Being a new teacher, she didn't brush me off. And I would be ever grateful to Doris for that. Doris Cook. Her name was Doris Hicks when I met her. But she, she taught me how to become a teacher. And she taught me to be open-minded. And, and, and that's what I think helped a lot. Because sometimes as a teacher, you get kind of stuck. And when new things come along, you might not want to try them. But at least I would try them. And it seems like at the end, you took on the role with younger teachers that Doris took on with you. Yes. I think it was my way of paying back. I, I was doing mentoring and I think it's just, you have to pay things back. It might not be to the, to that same person, but you have to just do that. You know, like I, I tell you, you have to give back. You have to do these things because that's how you have your blessing to do that. And that's what, why we're here. We're here to take care of not just ourselves and our immediate family, but we're here to take care of other people too. What do you like about that aspect of teaching? Because it's a different type of teaching that you're doing. You're teaching teachers. So what do you like about being able to teach teachers? I think in most cases, and I'm not saying in all cases in the mentoring program, but I think in most cases, uh, the younger teachers were very anxious about learning things. And what I found out, that they were very anxious about teaching me things. And so I was very grateful about that because now remember the computers were just being introduced into the schools. They knew more about the computers than I did. They knew more about the internet than I did. And they were very generous about sharing this knowledge. And it was like, uh, you teach me this, I teach you that. And that's what I enjoyed about it. I still have teachers who call me to ask me advice on different things. And I, and I just think it's a hoot, you know, and uh, it's a lot of fun. 
but uh, it was a sharing experience. And I appreciate that. I, I appreciate young teachers, young people who are saying to themselves, they're not saying to themselves, you know, when she's old, she's this that, and the other. I think there are a lot of teachers who, are, who want the expertise that you have. And, you know, and they, they come to you and they ask you. And I think that's a good thing. If I dropped you into a classroom tomorrow, do you think that you could, <laughs> do you think that you could, you could pick up where you left off with, with this generation um, of students? I don't know now. I used to think I could, but I don't know now. Things are so different. Uh, I know, I know this. I don't think that I would have to have a, all I would need would be a piece of, <clears throat> a board to write on and a tool to write with. I don't think I would need a book because there's a lot of stuff still in my head, but I think I could teach them something, yes. Okay. I tried to to teach the, the great grandkids and I you know, <laughs> tried to teach the grandson. And so, you know, I still have that in me. I still have the, I am a teacher. I am an educator. And I think I display that just about every place I go along. Don't you think so? Don't I, you think I'm always trying to teach people? Things? Yes, I do. It, it, <laughs> it's appreciated. I, I, think, I don't think it's appreciated, but that's who I am. <laughs> I, so, so I wasn't sure, even yes. after getting the golden apple, I wasn't sure if I was going to teach. And then, of course, you know, I fell in love with broadcasting and then come all full circle. I end up back in a classroom as what I like to call a, I'm a scholar practitioner. You know, I'm someone, I'm someone who's teaching what it is that I do for a living. Good. Did you Good. think that I would end up back in a classroom? I don't think so, Lawrence. You know what? I, now, just to be truthful, I thought you would get into this. And leave town. Really? Yes. I'm telling the truth. Your father's laughing, but it's true. I thought you would go to some other state or and to continue this. I didn't think you would stay in Chicago. I'm very pleased that you did. But I really thought that, you know, you would just take off and go someplace else. Oh, I love it here. I, I, I never want to leave it if oh. I don't have to. Oh, I know you love it here. But I'm just saying that's what I thought at first, you know, because at first this was just when you started this in high school, it was, it was something to do. You know, do you understand that? Yeah, it was something yeah. to do because I was on crutches. and, and Because you were on crutches, yeah. And uh, it was something to do. And then you found out you did it well. And so, and that's always a wonderful thing. It is. It is. I have to tell you though, I, I do like being in a classroom with these students. It, it is a good feeling. What? Unless you, you've, you've taught, you don't understand that. But if you've taught at any time, you understand that feeling of, you know, 
being in here and I'm teaching, I'm, I'm showing these young people something. That's for somebody who enjoys teaching. There are people who don't enjoy it. And, it, and it's a skill like everything else. You either like it or you don't like it. You're right about the when the light comes on. Yeah. And I see this even with college students. Yeah. When the light comes on and you open their world up to a new way of thinking. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. phenomenal. Like it's such a great, it's a great feeling or when you explain something to them and then mm-hmm. they, they work through it and then they look at you and they go, Oh, Oh, <laughs> that's, that's what you were talking about. It's yes. a, it's a really wonderful feeling. And I'm glad that I, I took <clears throat> the opportunity to go back into a classroom. Yes. Because I feel like I'm giving, I'm giving them something that they need. Like I'm not, like I'm, I'm giving them something, not just life skills, but like career skills that mm-hmm. if they want to go on, they can use. And even if there's some stuff that I feel like even plays beyond a, a career in broadcasting, but I really like it. And I really like how the students respond to it. Right, right. It, it is. It's a wonderful, wonderful feeling, and and it and it makes you feel like it's so satisfying when someone walks up to you and they're 28 years old, and they'll say, you know, uh, I remember when you taught me, and then it's like, what? <laughs> you remember that? And 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 yeah, it was important to them, or I remember. Uh, a note that you wrote me when I was six, because I used to have uh, a little mailboxes in the in the classroom, and they could write notes to each other as long as the notes were kind. It was a kind mailbox, and I would if they would write me a note, I would write them a note back. And I've had adults come up to me and say, "I remember this note that you wrote," and it's a very good feeling. So yes. Learning is a very good thing. I know you don't know that I was shy in school. You were shy? See, that that strikes me as strange as the person who will look someone in the eye and not take any stuff from anyone. Yes, but I was seven. I was very shy. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I could, now, I know you don't have time for this. I have all the time in the world. And and when we went to grammar school, it was rote reading. And by that, I mean, this person read this far, and then the next person read the next paragraph or the next two sentences or whatever. So whenever it would come to my turn, I would stumble over these words. These words, I would just stumble. And I would get all hot and red, and I could not do it. So I had this teacher, Mrs. Edmonds, and she kept me after school. Evidently, she and my mother and my father had worked this out. I didn't know. But she would keep me after school. And I would read to her standing up. And I would just read. And I would come and she would hug me while I was reading. And she would be telling me, you know, you can do this. I knew the words. It was just standing up in front of the people that the words would escape me. And she she taught me 
that I could do this. And I, re I remember that. I remember that. And I took that when I started teaching. I would make sure that I didn't leave the shy ones behind because they had a voice too. And I would always put myself in their place and say, no, you can do this. You can do this. We're going to practice this because I remember how I felt and I didn't want anybody else to feel like that. So you're learning things about your mother, right? Yeah, that's, that's pretty powerful stuff to then go from the person afraid to read to someone who spent a lifetime in front of people talking. Yes, it is. Oh, that's never thought about it like that, Lawrence. That's true. And, and I mean, you were presenting to even other teachers and. Yes. Yes, I have. And graduate have. school and everything else. Yeah, that's something. Life, that's life. Am I now part of the club because I have a master's degree or? You are part of our club. <laughs> <laughs> you are part of our club, Lawrence. We, we, we would have accepted you in this club if you had not had. Oh, well, thank you. It's very yeah, nice of you to say. You're that. our special boy. <laughs> you, you, you and your brother, you're our special boy. Yes. <laughs> what What do you, because you, you had talked earlier about seeing a difference in your father when he had grandchildren. What do you mm -hmm. think was different about you when you had your grandchild? Uh, I don't know. I think... I don't know, Lawrence. Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. I tried to give him everything that I could, you know, what I had. I tried to spend a lot of time with him. I think I did that. Um, I think I was more like my father in that regard. I thought he was, you know, just terrific. And so I wanted to spend a lot of time with him. So I think... In that regard, I was like my father. But I also, like I tell everybody, I'm always a teacher. So I was always trying to teach him something, you know, just teach him something, show him something, make sure he was well-rounded. And I think that's what, that's what I did. But I think it was more like my father. I embraced being a grandparent and he embraced it too, along with my mother. <clears throat> What about being a great grandparent? Ooh, that's a hoot. I I think they are hilarious. I look at them, I get so tickled by them because evidently they look at us and they think we can do all of this stuff they want us to do, you know. And uh, but I enjoy it. I enjoy being around them. But as soon as they leave, we go to bed. Because it's that exhausting. <laughs> we, have to, we have to go to bed. They think nothing of asking me to make pancakes at seven o'clock in the evening. And I do it. But I mean, it's just they want to play. They want to learn. They want this. They want that. And by the time they're out of here, we are, we go to sleep. That's all we can do. <laughs> I don't even clean up the house. 
I just wait until the next day to clean up because they've scattered everything all over the floors and everything. I like so to watch it, you with them. I really do. I do like. To, I, I do. I love it because I love to see both you being very excited and also a little bit frustrated with yes. dealing with them. But there's a whether it's it, it's you or Pop, like there's a brightness in your eyes in dealing with them because they're yes. so like their their love is so unconditional. It is. It is. And uh, and I enjoy it. I really do enjoy it. I mean, if you can give somebody a popsicle and they love you, <laughs> you know why? <laughs> wow. Or if you can make them a little quarter size pancake and they love the pancake, they love the syrup and they love you. That's not that's not a lot, is it? No, but it's it, it's, it's something that they'll remember forever. Like I think uh, I think about I think about how how I was fed by my mm -hmm. grandmother. Like that oh, yeah. those memories are like hardwired into my brain. They are. I remember they are. her sitting there watching Bulls games with me. Yes. Yes. Or teaching you how to read the newspaper and you're a toddler who can't even talk. <laughs> <laughs> She's trying to teach you how to read the newspaper. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, I hope they have these memories. I hope they have these memories of us. I want it to be a positive, you know, memory. And uh, so far, you know, it's good. I enjoy them a lot. I, I enjoy them a lot. I enjoy my nieces, my great nieces and nephews a lot too. Because it's, it's just amazing to me. You know, I can see a family resemblance in this one. And this one looks just like, so I'm enjoying it. And I'm, I'm enjoying that they're, they're learning. That's always a plus to me when people are learning. You travel to a lot of places. Yes. Is there any place that you wish you would have traveled to? Oh, there are a lot of places I wish I had traveled to. We were just talking about Egypt yesterday. I would love to see the Pope. Would love to go there. Uh, I would like to see Paris. I don't think I'll be able to do that now, but those were my goals. When you were younger, those were places that you thought about? No, I don't think I thought like that. I think I thought about the United States. I wanted to go to California, I know that. And I wanted to go to New York. You know, I wanted to see these places. I don't think when I was younger, I thought about international travel. But I did want to go to California, New York, two states which I have not been to yet. You still haven't made it to New York and California. Nope. You were so close in Arizona. Going to take me to. Hmm. You were so close in Arizona. I know it. I know it. But I enjoyed uh, Arizona a lot. That's someplace I just want to go and stay. Well, not now, but <laughs> when things clear up. I'm not to go and stay for a while. In the winter, yes, because right in now, even even if there wasn't a pandemic, you wouldn't want to be there at this <laughs> time now. of the year because it's the worst. No. 
it is the worst time of the year. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at the forecast now, and there's no forecast in Phoenix that isn't below 109 degrees for the next 10 days. Oh my goodness! No, no, we could not have, we could not have lived through that. But I enjoyed in October and November, which we went last time was in October and November, so that was very nice for us. And then we went in the spring, March, and April, and that was really uh, okay, so on the record, I mean, I like to get this on the record. Um, what was what was I like as a child? You don't want that on the record. <laughs> You're just pretending. You don't want that on the record. I I feel like these stories are just stories. Oh no, you were you were beautiful. You were very loving you loved us a lot but you were you were just inquisitive to the point of distraction mm. and you were very noisy we weren't used to that <laughs> we were we had a relatively quiet life your brother on the other hand was just so quiet and you know just quiet what's another word for that he was just satisfied. He was quiet. He went about his business. Self-contained is the word. You, on the other hand, were not self-contained. You were contained. <laughs> so where where do you think that comes from? I don't know. Because I think I think of both of you all of as being self-contained people. Oh, I think it comes from your father. I think he wasn't self-contained as a little boy. Oh. And I think I think that's where you got that from. <clears throat> and he mellowed out like you have. So, I mean, but by the time you were five, it, it was over. But, I mean, you just, you were just any place I took you, you know, you were doing your own little thing. You're three and four years old. Uh, watching over at a friend of mine's house, you wanted to watch the baseball game, and you wanted him to sit there with you while you watched the baseball game. And you were sitting there telling him all the things you knew about baseball. So there were just things that you would do, riding the neighbor's dog. I didn't know where you were. Uh, just you were very, very busy. And so you were a different kind of child. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know it. This is not a secret. We've always told you about it. It's very true. It's true. It is very true. It's very true. But you were always kind, Lawrence, and, and uh, you were never mean. And so uh, we like that. We like that. Okay, uh, someone actually asked, said needed, said that I should ask you this question because I've talked about it on the air. Okay. Where do you have me? Like where, in in your mind, how old am I? Six. I'm six. Six. <laughs> yes, six years old. You are leaving kindergarten. You're on, in first grade. Six years old. That's where you are in my, in my. I mean, I'm not, you know, but in my my mind, 
I see you at six. Where's where do you think your husband sees me? Where does he have me at? I think where do you see him at? He says fifteen. That's what I thought. I thought he would say that particular number. Why? I don't know. I just feel like that's that's still the way that he he kind of talks to me. It's still he's got me at about 15, 16 years old. Do I talk to you like you were sick? Yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. It's totally fine. And often it is warranted that, that one would talk to me like I was six years old. Six years old. Wow, Lawrence. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, but that's it. It's totally fine. It's yes. Completely yes. fine. There, there's, those were good old days. They were. Yes, they were. One they more good experiences. I I want to ask you about that. What do you think <laughs> we got from our experience of living on the South Side? I think you you made good friends. I think you made good friends, and and we were we were very blessed in where we put you in school, because there were people there who actually cared about you and your brother as human beings, and you can't <clears throat> find that a lot. You know, so people are so busy, but it didn't matter what time I came to pick you up. Or what child I saw, they were sad. Lawrence is in the back playing ball. Braxton's in the basement of, of the church. I didn't even know these children's names, but they knew me, and they know they knew you all. So I think that was a blessing. We we kind of we kept you close. I kept you close, you and your brother. But uh <clears throat> I think that helped a lot and you you all kept those friends for a long time. We did. What do you think about it? I do you think that was that closeness or was I imagining that? No, you were not. It was in I mean, there are people that I spent nine years with. Right. From from kindergarten to to f- finishing eighth grade. Yes. That that you know those families, you know the Sutherlands, you know the Cody's, you know, like that, that there's just something about like that, that space and time in that community. It's, it's one of the things that makes me really sad about what happened to St. Thaddeus. Yeah. Cause I, I did feel like that there was a real strong group of parents that, yes. that cared about the church and the school and the type yes. of education that their their children were getting. And their grandchildren. Because remember, a lot of those people stayed in that community. And their grandkids went to St. Thaddeus. And, uh, but, you know, things change. That's what I, I have to remind myself and remind others. Everything cannot stay the same. We'd like for it to stay the same. But it doesn't. And we have to kind of adjust ourselves to the change because if you don't, it's, it's a miserable life. Well, what did you think of the, the connection that you now have to yes. the, the, the Cubs number one draft pick? The fact that Ed Howard is, is the, the grandson of one of your friends that we all grew up with. 
Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's crazy. It's really, it is, really it's crazy. Wonderful. It's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. I love when young people do things. And knowing that family, I think that they are, you know, a great family. And I, I just think it's just wonderful and how blessed they must feel to have nurtured him and, and helped train him to become this person. And when he was on your show, he just spoke so well. And I just thought, I said, he is more than just a baseball player. He's intelligent. And somebody took time to nurture him to become a fine young man. Want to know how much money he got for signing his deal? How much money? $4 million. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Isn't that great? It is great. It is great. And, and I know, like I said, knowing his family that and, and figuring out how he was brought up, I'm sure that it will be a blessing for him and he'll continue in the right right way, going the right way. Yeah, you aren't can, you proud of it? I am, and you can tell. Like you can tell. Mm-hmm. You, you, us knowing that family, like you can tell how he was raised. It, it's mm-hmm. and it, it's right. he's impressive. Like that's the word that I said to Herbie after we we had finished the interview. I said impressive. Mm-hmm. Like he's just he's it's- He's too smart to be 18, too wise to be only right. 18 years old. Right. And and I bet you he has a plan besides this plan A. I bet you has a plan B and a plan C for his life. This is not all he is. And you can tell that. He reminds me there's a guy from Chicago named Curtis Granderson. And Curtis played in the major leagues for almost 20 years. He and I are around the same age Mm -hmm. and he, I wouldn't be surprised if Curtis was mayor of Chicago. (laughs) Like he, and, and Ed reminds me of that. Like it's the same type of gravitas Mm -hmm. of, of being in a room and being able to bring people to your cause. And, And so with Curtis, Curtis has donated like $5 million to UIC, or as you used to say back in the day, Circle. Circle. Do you know that they're embracing that again? Good. They should. So what they're doing is that every piece of signage at UIC is now a circle. Oh, that's nice. I thought it was nice to call it Circle. It said exactly who it was and where it was. I agree. But I like that they're embracing it again. Yes. It's part it's part of a great history. Yeah. A lot of stuff. I remember when they were building it. Oh, I'm so old. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything that you miss about the city? Uh the restaurants. I miss the restaurants in the city. I miss the museums in the city. You know? I love the museum. You were a member, and, right? Yes. Uh-huh. And the Art Institute and the Museum of Science. And I'm still a member. I don't go. But I, I maintain my membership. One day I'm going to go over there uh, in the Museum of Science and Industry. 
because I think it's important for us to support these things. But I used to go. But that that's what I miss, the ability to go to those things. Michigan Avenue, I miss those things. I miss shopping downtown. I miss that. I enjoyed the last time that you guys came to the radio station. There's a great picture of you two holding hands, which is one of my favorite oh. pictures ever. Um, I enjoyed the look of wonder on each of your faces in kind of yeah. seeing what the city had become. Absolutely. And you're and going, and you're going what's that? What's that? And where's yeah. that? And who's that? Who is that? Yeah. It's amazing because living in the suburbs, we don't get a chance to see all of these things that you see all the time. I'm amazed when we come into the city and, and you drive us places, uh, how the how the drive looks. And I'm always saying, oh, look at those flowers. Look at, because we don't get to see that. We're just sort of isolated out here. But um, and this is our choice to be here. But those are the things I miss about the city. Well, I thank you for your time. This was delightful. Oh, Lawrence, I appreciate it. Did I use my school teacher voice? That's what your brother always says. You did use your school teacher voice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't intend to. I wanted to use my my real voice. <laughs> your real voice? You want to use your West Side voice before we get out of here? Yes, my real voice, my tired voice. Yes. Okay, well, I hope this comes out all right, Lawrence. Yeah, well, how could it not? Well, that is true. <laughs> Are you going to let me hear it? No, not until it's published. You're oh. not. I, I run House of L. You don't run House of L. You run House of Homes. That's a different thing. Yes, I, I, I know. I know. You'll hear it well, when it I've, comes out, and it'll be great. I've done my best, and I'm glad that you asked me to do this. I, I was a little apprehensive about it. I told your father, but I told him to shout out if I said something stupid. So he didn't shout out, so it's all right. Well, you need to thank Tony Gill, too, because he's the person who wanted to hear from you. Well, thank you, Tony. I appreciate that. I appreciate him asking. Yeah, young Tony felt like you had. He said that you you probably have great stories, and he's correct. You do have great stories. Yeah, right. Uh Well, that's my life. It hasn't been as exciting as yours, but it was my life. I think it's been equally as exciting as mine. I go to I go to Detroit and Green Bay and Minneapolis. That's that was my life for a while. Yeah, but, but that was all right. What you were doing, you were meeting people. True. Exciting people. It's true. And you still do, like Ozzy. Yes, like Ozzy Gee and your favorite. <laughs> this is the point where your husband might yell out and say something. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Stop talking okay, about yeah. Ozzy. Oh, okay, Lawrence. I'm through talking now. All right. Well, thank you for this. And uh, I love you and I appreciate you doing this. Oh, I love you too, Lawrence. And I appreciate you asking me. And now it'll live and, forever. Huh? Oh, yeah, it will. And my great-grandchildren will hear it. And they'll say, who is that crazy woman? You have to tell <laughs> 
That was your great, great grandmother. That was your great grandmother who loved you a lot. And you have to tell them that. Yes, and that you forced they forced you to make them pancakes that were shaped that's like right quarters. when I at seven o'clock in the evening. But I did. So that's life. With a smile on your face. Well, I didn't have a smile, but it was. <laughs> I I did it. That's all. That's all they care about. All right, well, I'm going to let you just get back to lounging under the AC and so you could watch Hamilton again. Yeah, say goodbye to your father. See you later, Pop. Okay, bye-bye, Lord. Bye, baby. That's my mom. That's what she's all about, and I'm really proud to have been raised by her. Like, her whole approach. I like it. I get it. As I've gotten older, I really understand it more and what they did the sacrifices that my parents made for my brother and I our education I think about it you know the decision to move from the south side like it broke my heart when we moved from Roseland to Homewood it broke my heart and it's ended up being like the best thing for me it established this life for me not that I wouldn't have had a great life if we'd have stayed on the south side I'm sure I would have figured out something but who knew you know I found this because they took a risk and and she's the catalyst at the beginning of this when you hear her talking about me doing radio she's the catalyst for it the story behind it is, is I've told it a bunch of times, but the story behind it is, I don't know if I've actually told it to you. Freshman year at HF, I got hurt playing basketball. I mean, I ripped my ankle to shreds. I had to have what's called a triple arthrodesis surgery. They fused three bones into one in my right ankle. So I was on crutches. I was doing like serial casting. My foot has still never really quite been right. So I don't usually play a lot of run jump sports, but I was devastated because I was a a really good athlete in, in junior high. And I was looking forward to being one of the great athletes at HF. That didn't happen. I eventually got myself healthy enough to play again, but I was bummed out. I don't know if you would call it depression, but I was bummed out. And my mother said, you know, they have a radio station and they talk about sports on the radio, you could talk about sports on radio. Since you love sports, you should go do that. So I did. That's when I met Ben Bradley. Ben Bradley and I have been friends for 30 years now. And it pushed me into doing this, into doing, being a broadcaster. All from her suggestion that I take something that was extremely negative and turn it into a positive. My mom's really great in that way. Like her level of motivation, it's high. And she thinks of all sorts of like contingencies. And I know that that goes into some of my stuff too, where I'm planning and planning and planning. But she had the foresight to say, even while you're on crutches, you can go and do this. You can still be, attached to the thing that you love to do 
even though you don't get to play for right now. 30 years later, I have a career in broadcasting because she had the foresight and the ability to explain to me that it wasn't over. There was just a difference in how I was going to interact with sports. And my grandmother, I'm not kidding. The stories in there about my grandmother, that's legit. She would read me the sports section. We would sit, I would, she would sit me on the floor. She would sit in her chair. I'd watch a DePaul game. It's the reason why I love DePaul basketball because they used to be on TV like all the time. She loved the Bulls. She loved Michael Jordan. So being able to share that with you is fun. And I'm glad that my mother had time to hang out and talk. She's very nervous about this for some reason, which is crazy because her and my father, what they do is speak publicly. They've done it for a combined 72 years. But I guess an interview is a little bit different. It wasn't like I was holding up the the big flashlight or the overhead light in an interrogation room, was it? I don't think so. But I'm glad you got a chance to hear her. And, and see her, hopefully see her the way that I see her. Let's do some, some emails before I conclude this episode. And the emails are brought to you by Team Hockberg. David Hockberg has really stepped up and become a partner of this podcast. I'm so happy that he's here. If you are looking to buy a home or refinance your home, you need to call him. 1-855-56-DAVID or go to 56david.com. I'm not kidding you when I say I've worked with him on both properties that I bought. When I bought my condo and then when my condo was too small because I was getting married and I bought a house, David Hochberg is the person that I went to to get it financed. He can help you. He will help you and he will run through a wall for you. When you call him at 855-56-DAVID, tell him that you heard about it on the podcast. It helps me. It helps him. But if you're looking for someone to help you out while you're trying to buy a home or refinance one, this is the guy that you want on your side. 56david.com. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender. NMLS number 1124061. So let me grab some of your emails. You guys have been great with emails lately. Houseoflpodcast at gmail.com. That's houseoflpodcast at gmail.com. This is from Siraj. Siraj said, Hey, Lawrence, love the House of L podcast. Love hearing the stories from Joe Cowley, Chris Ranji, and Alex Brown. I would love to hear stories about the following people. ESPN host Jonathan Hood, David Kaplan, Mark Silverman, WGN host Lauren Jiggetts, Dan Ponce, Dan Wiederer, Phil Rosenthal. Huge fan of yours. Been listening to you since you were producer on the Murph Show. Keep up the good work. And that's from Siraj. Well, Siraj, if you made it to episode 119, you probably listened to episode 118, which was Jonathan Hood. And if you haven't, you should go back and listen to it because it's great. The other names on the list, Cap and I are actually, we've been dancing around having him on House of L. I feel like that would be the longest episode of House of L. We've been working on a couple of projects together. Stay tuned for that. But yes, he is already agreed to be on House of L. We just have to figure out a way to get it on his schedule. 
Sylvie, I love to get Sylvie on the podcast. Clearly, he's going through a much more important thing right now as he's he's fighting cancer. But I'll reach out and see if he has time. And I would also put Jeff Dickerson on the list. He's someone who's one of my best friends in this business. And I'm I don't know why I haven't had him on the podcast yet, but he's on my list, too. I keep thinking Lauren Jiggets has been on House of L and she hasn't. We did do a really great sit down for the radio show, but her life has changed so much since then that it, it makes sense to reach out to LJ. And and with the pa- passing of our friend Dick Johnson, yeah, I, I think that's a great call by you to suggest that she be on. And Dan Weederer, I, I really like that guy. I like the way that he writes. I like the things that he's about. We have a, a good relationship. But, yeah, I'll ask him, too, and Phil Rosenthal. I, oh, it's only fair, right? Phil did an interview with me. or he, I did an interview with Phil. Phil should do an interview with me. It's a really good list. And thanks for your support over the last, wow, 17 years. I think that was – I think I started producing Murph and Fred in 2000. No, I left Murph and Fred in 2003. Jeez, I'm old. Thanks to your support over the last 20 years. This is from Syed. Syed says, Lawrence, really enjoy the podcast and all the work you've been doing on various platforms. I recently listened to another podcast where they had Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf as their guest, and I found it to be really interesting. I think all of your listeners would enjoy hearing his perspective, particularly given recent events. Give the podcast below a listen. I think you'll agree with me, and he'd be an interesting person to have on House of L. It's not just his account of what happened in the National Anthem, but also his description of his upbringing and his college stories of recruitment that I found interesting. You don't have to convince me. I appreciate you uh, reaching out, Syed. He's very interesting. I mean, I think that it's, it's, if you go back a few episodes ago, the interview that the sit-down I had with Craig Hodges, similar not the same, but similar and similar experiences. So I thank you for that suggestion. Let's do one more. This is from Damien. Damien says, I would like to thank you for sharing the information about podcast equipment, podcast audio equipment you use in episode 107 of House of L. The information was beneficial. I'm looking forward to future episodes. Kind regards, Damien. Yeah. It's so strange because I've actually, I guess, technically been doing consultant work on other people's podcast. And what I can give you for free is this. You don't need the crazy equipment to do a podcast. Other than my, my laptop, which I've had, it's probably time to upgrade. But that's the most expensive thing here. My microphone's $20. My audio board is $80. You could outfit and do a podcast for like 500 bucks. Easy. And then you can get your your feelings out there. You could record an interview with your parents if you want it. And have it and send it out to the world. You don't need to go insane to outfit yourself with... I'm not saying just speak into your headphones of your iPhone, although you could do that and the sound quality is not terrible. And if I had like a, a production studio, if we get to a place where we can all be back in the same room again, fine. 
But for my office, the amount of space that it takes for me to produce this podcast on a weekly basis, I'm stretching out, stretching out my arms right now. It fits inside my very short arms on my desk. You'd be surprised. But I thank you anyway, man. Thank you. Uh, I'm 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 available if people have ideas. I'm I'm trying to do some more content on House of L. We want to turn this into a content house of L. <clears throat> so that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for your support. I'm I know that the feedback on the episode with my mom is gonna be great because she's great. And you should go interview your parents too. Or anyone that had a significant role in in bringing you up. Doesn't have to be parents. But if if your parents are around, you should interview them. If your grandparents are around, you should interview them. Anyone that had impact on you, you should interview them and find out more about them as a person. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Team Hockberg, 56david.com. Thanks for your support of this podcast and allowing me to explore different sorts of interviews. And thanks to my mom, who's great. And now you know why I think she's great. Have a wonderful rest of your day. I will talk to you soon. Peace. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.